Okay, I've got a question for you. What's the best known Bible verse in America? Call it out. John 3.16. No. Wrong. What's that? Genesis 1.1. No. I mean, that's a good guess, but I think probably not. Probably what you're going to find most often on coffee mugs is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Pro athletes around the country have really tried to make that the most quoted verse in America. But that also is not the best known verse in America. It's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Yeah? How many times have you heard that? What's the saying most attributed to the Bible that's not actually in there? There are probably a lot of them. I, the, the one that I want to call your attention to, and I'm sure you've heard this, to err is human, but to forgive, divine. That is not Jesus. That's Alexander Pope, an English poet. Now, I call this to your attention because I think if there's one thing that Americans think Christianity is about, or at least should be about, it's forgiveness. It's about grace towards sinners. I think this is actually in part what drives the moral outrage at Christian hypocrisy. People get really upset at Christian hypocrisy, right? Why is that? Well, I don't think it's just because we fail to live up to our own standards, though all of us feel a kind of righteous hatred towards people that preach a standard and then don't live up to it. I don't think that's just it. I think it's actually that there's a sense out there in America that our insistence on standards at all is actually a betrayal of what Christianity is supposed to be about in the first place. Like, why do you guys talk about standards all the time? Isn't Christianity about grace? Isn't it about forgiveness? How could a church that boasts in the gospel of grace judge people? How could a church that preaches forgiveness kick people out of the church because of their sin? Shouldn't we be the place of Second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. Shouldn't we? Didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? Well, we're actually not sure he said that, but it's, it's in John chapter 8. You can talk to me about that later. I raise all of this because for a church like ours, and this is very much going to be a sermon aimed at our church. Visitors, we're so glad you're here. You've chosen a rather strange Sunday to be here. I'll talk about that in a minute. But for a church like ours, a church that practices church discipline, this is not an academic question. This morning, we're going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians, a series we've entitled United We Stand. This, I fully admit, is a strange sermon for Advent. I'm going to try to convince you later that it's a very appropriate sermon for Advent, but I just want to acknowledge up front, this is a strange passage to be in as we get ready for Christmas, as we're decorating our houses and singing Christmas carols, because actually in our passage this morning, Paul makes the case for removing people from church membership for kicking them out. 
If Christmas seems to be all about like inviting people in, this is a strange passage to be in. I get it. But here's, here's what I want you to think about this morning as we look at a very difficult passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I want you to think about what does it mean to boast in the gospel? What does that really mean? What, what, what should it entail of us? If our boast is really in the gospel of grace, because after all, if we're forgiven, and we believe we are in the gospel, if we're forgiven, should sin really matter? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, uh, this is found on page 1013. Those black Bibles in the pews and chairs around you, 1013. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. As you're turning there, let me just kind of catch you up, because I, I realized the last three weeks I've been away. You've been in Job. We're back in 1 Corinthians now, so let me just remind you uh, where we are. Remember, the Corinthians are a church that are divided over their rivalries between their favorite preachers, and that rivalry has actually become a point of boasting for them. I'm with Peter. I'm with Paul. You know, I'm with Apollos. Uh, so they're, they're boasting in their favorite preachers. And, and Paul has argued, nah, you guys should not be divided over your favorite preachers. No, you, you should be united because our unity is in the message of the gospel, not the messengers of the gospel. And as he worked out that argument over the first four chapters of the book, he's, he's made the point that therefore we should be people who are humbly building up the church, not tearing it down. We, we, we should even be willing to suffer for the sake of the unity of the church in the gospel. But now we get to chapter five. And Paul, and, and you've, 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 like you won't understand this chapter if you miss the, the, the change in tone. Paul points out how ridiculous they are. You guys, in all your boasting, you guys are absolutely ridiculous because you're tolerating unrepentant sin. Here's, here's the point of 1 Corinthians 5. If our boast is in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin. If our boast is in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin. Now, no, I'm not saying if our boast is in the gospel, we won't forgive sin. I'm not talking about forgiveness here. Forgiveness is freely offered in the gospel. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Forgiveness is freely offered in the gospel in response to repentance and faith. No, the word is tolerate. If, we're, if our boast is in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin. It sounds counterintuitive, but he gives us three compelling reasons. Here's the first one. If our boast is in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin for the sake of the sinner. For the sake of the sinner. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. 
As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, so... Paul is talking about reports again. Remember back in chapter one, verse 11, he actually began this whole letter. Like there are reports of rivalry and division among you. People are boasting about which preacher party they belong to. And now he refers to something else that's been reported, maybe by the same people that brought the reports of rivalry. There is scandalous sexual immorality that's being tolerated in their church. It's, it's incest. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we don't know all the details. Paul doesn't seem to care to give us all the details. It, it, it seems very clear from the language he uses that it's not his biological mother. It's his father's wife, so it's his stepmother. We don't know if his father's dead or not. And, and, and I get it considered biologically that's not incest. But legally, in Paul's culture, legally in Jewish culture, that was incest to sleep with your stepmother. And that's what this guy is doing, and they're tolerating it. Paul points out that not even the pagan Gentiles tolerate that kind of stuff. And there wasn't much they didn't tolerate. I mean, if you read about what went on in the pagan temples of the day, they tolerated all sorts of stuff, but not that. What's more, Paul points out, it's quite public. Like the report has gotten to him all the way across, you know, where where he is in in Ephesus. The the report has has reached him. Everybody in the church seems to know about it, and they're not doing anything about it. Now, it's in that context, this report of scandalous sin being tolerated, that Paul points out that their pride, their their arrogance there, verse 2, their arrogance about their great preachers and how wonderful they are as a church, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Instead of feeling good about themselves, what does he say? He says, actually, you should be filled with grief. You should be filled with grief and have already removed this man from the congregation, verse 2. And so Paul then proceeds to tell them to do just that. And he proceeds to tell them how to do it. Once again, he's, I think, in these verses speaking as their, as their father in Christ. Remember, that's how he referred to himself at the end of chapter 4. You don't, you, you've had many teachers, but not many fathers. You became a Christian through me, and I'm your father in Christ. And, and back at the end of chapter 4, he was encourage, encouraging them to, to imitate him as children imitate a father. Well, he's doing it again here. He has already passed judgment on the man, as you see there in verse 3. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. So he has already passed judgment on the man, and so should they, he says. In a kind of unity of spirit with him, he says, the next time that you are assembled in the name of the Lord. So what that means is next Sunday, because that's when they assembled. They assembled on Sundays. This letter is being read to them on a Sunday. He says, look, the next time you gather, I'm giving you one week. The next time you're assembled, next Sunday, in the power of the Lord Jesus, 
And, and in his authority, not yours, not mine, in his authority, that's, that's why he talks about being in the name of the Lord, they should hand that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 5. Okay. What in the world does it mean to hand somebody over to Satan? Well, let me tell you what I'm really confident it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, he's not saying like, hand him over to Satan so that Satan can take possession of him. He's not describing a scene out of a horror movie here. No, I think what he's talking about is he's saying, look, you need to remove this man from the realm of the spirit, which is the church, sort of the kingdom of the spirit, and you need to put him back into the realm of Satan, the kingdom of Satan, which is the world. In other words, you need to remove him from your membership. Now, the hoped-for result of this exclusion from church membership, it's, it's abrupt because it, it's just going to happen next week. It's, it's, it's shocking. But, but the hope is, is for what Paul calls the destruction of the flesh. You see that there in, in verse 5. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Paul is not talking about the destruction of the man's physical body. He's already referred to his own, Paul's, physical body using a different word in verse 3. He, he, he uses a, a different word here, a, a word that, that makes it really clear that he's talking about the man's sinful desires, his, his inclination to pursue his own sin rather than an inclination to pursue God. He's using the word flesh here the same way he uses it in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 8. The contrast is flesh versus spirit, oriented away from God, oriented toward God. He doesn't want the man to die. He wants him to die to sin. He wants him to turn away from his sin and turn back to God. And so, as we see there, be saved on the last day, the day of the Lord. Paul understands that the only assurance of genuine conversion, of genuinely being saved. The only assurance of genuine conversion is a converted life. And incest is many things, but it is surely not proof of a converted life. It is surely not consistent with having been born again of the Spirit of God. Paul's hope is that putting him outside the church will be a wake-up call, a wake-up call that will lead to the man's repentance, a repentance that's consistent with genuine saving faith, genuine conversion. It's a drastic measure, but it's a fairly drastic situation. What do we learn about church discipline in these first five verses? I think we learn several things that I want to point out. I think will be helpful for our church. First, we learn some things about sort of the criteria. When do you exercise church discipline? And the process. How do you go about church discipline? This is not the passage that most people think of when they think of church discipline. Most people think of Matthew 18. Yeah, most people think of Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Let's just read Matthew 15. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. You can turn, if you want, 
but I'm going to read it for you. This is Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Okay, in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus kind of lays out the basic process for dealing with unrepentant, private, personal sin between two members of the church. Jesus' goal clearly is, is repentance. If the guy listens, then you've won your brother. You've, you've, you've reclaimed him. So his goal is repentance. But notice the process that Jesus lays out emphasizes keeping the matter private, keeping the matter kind of small and contained as long as possible because it was just a sin between two people. So let's keep it tight. Let's keep it contained as long as possible in the hopes of, of regaining our brother. Paul is dealing with a very different situation. This is not private anymore. It is totally public. Everybody knows about it. Historically, Christians have understood public in this context of when is this in public? Historically, Christians have understood this to mean either when it's widely known in the church or it's known by non-Christians outside of the church. So it's, it's become public among, uh, among us, or it's like public, like people outside know. It's not just, though, that it's a public sin that's different here. He's also dealing with a scandalous sin. Paul goes out of his way to point that out, right? This is, this is something that would shock even non-Christians. Needless to say, that criteria, the criteria of scandalous, uh, is, it's going to change, right? It's going to be dependent on whatever culture you're in. Some things are scandalous in, a cult, in one culture, and they're not scandalous in another culture. Some things are scandalous to one culture at one point in time in history, but 100 years later, uh, that same culture, no longer scandalous. So this is, this is not a a set-in-stone kind of criteria. It, it is a criteria that's judged relative to the culture that we're in, but that's kind of the point. We should, Paul says, at least be different from the world in the ways that the world itself is ashamed. Well, if we can't be different there, oh, might as well hang it up. So Paul says, when either of these two criteria are met, public and or scandalous, the process is going to look different than Matthew 18. He doesn't say to the church, now you need to send somebody privately to confront the man. And then if he doesn't listen to that one, you need to send two or three others along to confront the man. And then if he doesn't listen to them, then finally you tell the church. No, he says next week, next week, when you're assembled, bring it to the church. 
Rather than a slow, patient, methodical process of repeated confrontation, keeping it private as long as possible, Paul says, no, deal with it publicly because it's already known publicly. And deal with it immediately because of its scandalous nature. It is bringing the church into disrepute. So that's the first thing we learn. We learn something about the criteria and something about the process for church discipline in this kind of situation. But I think a second thing we learn is that actually the goal is the same as Jesus' goal back in Matthew 18 when dealing with personal private sin. Just like Jesus in Matthew 18, Paul's goal is the salvation of the sinner. His his goal is repentance. Brothers and sisters, this is the first reason we should practice church discipline. Out of love. Out of love for the unrepentant brother or sister. We want to see not just our own salvation, I want to see you saved. I, I mean, I've talked about this before in an earlier sermon. Like, nothing is going to give me greater joy on the last day than to be standing there in front of Jesus and looking around and seeing you there too. That comes out of my love for you. We want to see each other saved on the last day. And therefore, we don't want to leave each other alone in our sin. We don't want to leave each other undisturbed in our sin. To leave someone self-deceived is not loving. To to leave someone in an unrepentant sin that clearly calls into question the reality of their conversion, but to continue to assure them, oh, I'm sure you're saved. I'll see you on the last day. That's not love. That's to inoculate them against the gospel. It's hatred, not love. It's certainly not maturity. Tolerating unrepentant sin in one another is nothing to boast about. And I think this really confronts us in our kind of Portland nice culture. You all know Portland nice? I may be judging you secretly in my heart, behind your back, but I would never say anything to, you know, rock the boat or upset you. I'm going to communicate uh, an attitude of tolerance and live and let live and just kind of leave you alone, regardless of what I'm thinking in my heart. That's a terrible thing, especially when it comes to sin. Oh, as churches, we're really good at taking public stands, uh, uh, broadcasting our opposition to this sin or that sin, that immoral behavior by those people out there. But then we don't want to apply it specifically to the people in here. We, 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 We don't want to risk the relationship. We don't want to rock the boat. Brothers and sisters, Portland nice is anything but nice. It leaves people undisturbed on their way to hell. 
I was reminded of this as I was thinking about this, this sermon this week of a, of a situation at a church uh, that I was at years ago. Uh, there was uh, a young man in the church, and he stopped attending. And we reached out to him repeatedly, and he just wouldn't come back to church. And he wouldn't tell us that he was resigning and going to another church. He just wouldn't attend. And he stopped talking to us. And so eventually, the church needed to act and, and discipline him, put him outside of the church's membership for non-attendance. Now, now some of us who, who had known this, this young man pretty well suspected that there was more going on. We suspected that there was some other sin that he was dealing with that he didn't want to bring out into the open. But we didn't know it. We couldn't prove it. I, I, we, we, it was just, we suspected it. So, so we didn't bring that to the church. We just brought his non-attendance. And the church acted, and they put him outside of their membership, and they sent him a letter telling them what they had done and the grief that it had caused in having to do it. And we didn't hear anything. Until quite a few years later, we got a letter from this man. And he told us the story. The story that in some ways we had suspected, but some of which we couldn't even have begun to suspect. He said he got that letter informing him that the church had disciplined him, had put him outside of the church. And it came at a really dark, dark point in his life. There was some very serious sin going on in his life. And he, which is what happens so often, when we begin to get entangled in sin, we cut ourselves off from Christians. We cut ourselves off from the church because we, want, we don't want to deal with the conviction. I, I don't want to feel guilty. And that's exactly what he had done. He had cut himself off, but he got that letter and he pinned it to the bulletin board over his desk. And that letter stayed with him. He went through actually several moves. And wherever he went, that letter got pinned to the bulletin board of his desk. And he told us, the reason I did that is because that letter was proof that there were some people that actually loved me, loved me enough to speak the truth to me. And it would be years before the Lord finally brought genuine conviction to that young man. But it did happen. And he was writing us to tell us that the Lord had moved him to yet another city. And in that city, he had found a local church. And he'd gone and he'd confessed his sin. And he'd turned back to the Lord. And they had received him into the fellowship of the gospel. And he was writing us to say thank you. Thank you for speaking the truth to me at a moment in time when I didn't want to hear the truth. And you wouldn't let me escape it. Friends, it is not loving to leave people alone in their sin. We've had two difficult cases of unrepentant sin here at Henson in the last nine months. The first case, the case that we dealt with over the summer, was a case that the elders brought under the terms of 1 Corinthians 5. 
in a post-Me Too environment, domestic violence, even the hint of it, is scandalous. What's more, in that case, it was, it was public in the most official way, with a public arrest, incarceration, and arraignment. I want to be really clear, though. The issue was never whether a secular court using secular standards of evidence would reach a guilty verdict about that man. The issue then was, and the issue remains, whether that man's repeated drunken behavior, putting his own wife and child at risk, was consistent with the claim to being a Christian. Brothers and sisters, it is not. It is not consistent with the claim that the Holy Spirit has actually made a person new. The second case, which was put in front of the congregation just last month, was brought under the terms of Matthew 18, having followed a process of private confrontation that slowly escalated until it was brought to the church. The sin itself was initially private and personal, and it was dealt with at that level, but eventually it was known even by non-Christians outside the church. It had become public. Was it scandalous? There was a time in our culture when adultery was scandalous even to non-Christians. In some circles, it still is. I wish it were more broadly considered that way. Given the brazen deceit that was involved over such a long period of time, I personally think the elders would have been entirely justified in asking the church to act immediately under the terms of 1 Corinthians 5. But given how much you, the church, struggled with the earlier action over the summer, given the fact that I had not preached on 1 Corinthians 5 yet, the elders thought that the better path for your sake not for his sake, for your sake, was the slower path. What I want the church to understand is that in both of these cases, the elders were not thinking like lawyers. We were not operating according to the rules and standards of the U.S. legal system. Frankly, we could care less about that. The elders are trying to think like pastors who desire the salvation of two different men who are caught and entangled and self-deceived in their sin. And the rules and process that we have been trying to follow are those laid out in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. There is one other thing, though, that we must see from this passage. And and this is where I'm spending the majority of the sermon in these first five verses. At the end of the day, church discipline 
is not the elder's decision. It's yours. It's yours, the assembled congregation. I mean, did you notice, Paul tells them what to do, but he doesn't do it himself, right? Paul, Paul, the apostle, cannot excommunicate this man by himself. Even that is beyond his authority. No, the church had to act. And so it is with our church. Brothers and sisters, when you pronounce judgment as a congregation, in the name of the Lord and with the power of the Spirit, something of extraordinary and profound spiritual significance is happening. And your declaration, your pronouncement of judgment is not, I repeat, it is not that someone is going to hell. That is beyond your authority. It's beyond mine. We don't put anybody in heaven or in hell. But your declaration that someone should no longer be confident in their claim to being a Christian, your declaration in church discipline that we can no longer publicly affirm somebody's profession of faith, oh, that is a powerful statement, a statement that is fraught with spiritual significance. We say it with grief but we say it with hope. We we never act in church discipline apart from grief. It grieves us when a brother or sister is so caught in sin that they are no longer even interested in repenting. But we say what we say, putting somebody outside of the church, we say it with hope. Hope that the disciplined person now removed from the church and put back into the world will experience exactly what Paul is talking about here and will repent and turn again to Christ and be saved in the end. Some people say, oh, you can't do church discipline. It doesn't work. Yeah, we don't, we don't do church discipline because it works. You can take that up with Paul and Jesus. We... we Practice church discipline out of obedience to our Lord. But we do practice it in hope. And you've seen that. I'm afraid it got, I'm, I'm afraid it got lost this summer but because of other things that were going on. But a number of years ago, we had to discipline a man in this church, a young man in this church, for serious, scandalous sexual sin. And he was angry at us for doing so. But his testimony this summer, for those of you that were at the members meeting, his testimony this summer is that that was the beginning of the Lord waking him up, of rescuing him from his self-deceit. And we had the joy this summer of seeing that young man, many many of you know him, being restored to the fellowship of one of our sister churches and us being able to affirm that with joy. We don't practice church discipline because it works every time. We do it because we're obedient, but we do it out of great hope because the Lord Jesus and the apostles tell us this is the means that God has given us to reclaim that brother or sister who seems beyond reclaiming. If our boast is in the gospel, 
we will practice church discipline. If our boast is in the gospel, we will not tolerate sin for the sake of the sinner. But that's not the only reason Paul gives. So more, more briefly, second, if our boast is in the gospel, we don't tolerate sin for the sake of the church. Look at, look at verse six. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul returns now to their boasting and points out how misplaced it is. He quotes this common proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. It's sort of like asking, so tell me, how many drops of urine do you want in that glass of water? Oh, none? Right, none. They think they're so great. They think they've got all these gifts. They think they've got these great preachers. And and yet their whole community has been affected by this man's sin. And so using the language of this proverb, Paul tells them again to remove the man. Verse seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Brothers and sisters, Henson Baptist Church, we are not a bunch of isolated Christians. We we are not here as independent contractors in the faith. We, We have not gathered as private consumers of religion. We are a body, or to use Paul's language here, we are a single batch of dough. And when sin is tolerated, it affects the whole batch. I'll never forget when I got a phone call from an old college friend in tears, she said that her husband, who she had put through medical school, had had left her for the secretary he hired for his medical practice. And she wanted to know what to do. And I I encouraged her to, to seek help from the elders of her church. And so she went to the elders of her church. And then she called me back and she said, they tell me there's nothing they can do. And they're about forgiveness and grace anyway. That was their words to her. We're a church that's about forgiveness and grace. So there's nothing we can do. And it was just a few months later that that church was welcoming her former husband and his new wife into membership, just sitting a few pews across from her and her kids. Did that help my friend who was struggling with the fact that her husband had left her? No, it did not help her. Did that help any of the men in that congregation who were themselves tempted to adultery? Nope, it did not help them. It just encouraged them that, yeah, maybe you can get away with this. No consequences. Did that help any of the other women in the church who themselves had been the victims of infidelity? No, it did not help them. What if we had ignored either of those two cases here in our own church that I was just talking about? Would that have helped anybody in the church who's currently struggling with porn or alcohol abuse? 
Would it have helped any of the women in our church who have suffered abuse in the past or maybe even are today? No. It would have helped no one except the sinner who wants to continue in their sin undisturbed. Brothers and sisters, we're in this fight together. I need you. I need you in the fight against sin. If I'm on my own in the fight against sin, I'm a goner. I am lost. I need you in the fight with me. And you need each other in the fight together. But how confusing and demoralizing it would be to try to be in the battle against sin because of the effect of the gospel on us and then turn around and see, oh, but nobody else seems to be too worried about it. Church doesn't seem to care about the sin that I'm struggling with, that I feel conviction about. Maybe I shouldn't feel convicted. Nobody else is. We care about this for the sake of the sinner. We care about it for the sake of the church. Now, we need to be clear, as Paul is, that the fight against sin in the church is not so that God will accept us. It's not so that we can clean ourselves up and be acceptable to God. Now, Paul urges the fight, Paul urges them to be concerned about unrepentant sin in the church because they're already acceptable to God. Did, did, did you see that there? Look, look at, at, at verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came and lived a life without sin. And then he offered that life as a sacrifice in our place. Paul refers to him here in verse 7 as our Passover lamb. He's drawing an analogy with what happened back in the Old Testament at the Exodus. The blood of the Passover lamb was spread on the doorposts of everyone's houses. Now, without that blood, the firstborn in every household was going to be put to death as a sign of judgment. But when the destroying angel saw the blood, what happened? He spared those who were sheltering under the blood. Friends, that's... That's what the gospel is all about. We are those who shelter under Christ's blood shed for us. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. Not that you have to work hard to clean yourself up, but that there is a place of shelter for you. Christ died for sinners like you, like me if you will turn away from your sins and put your trust in him. We'd love to talk to you more about this. I'll be standing down front afterwards. 
We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the end of the service, which is really a picture of this great truth that we are those who shelter under the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, and that that is enough. But, but that's not all Paul says here. As a result of the Passover, the people of God were set free from their slavery to Egypt. They were made into a holy nation, a, a people who belonged to God. And, and so that, that holy status that they now had as this new people of God was symbolized every year at the Passover feast by taking all the leaven in their house and getting rid of it. Because that leaven, I mean, it's fine, leaven, there's nothing wrong with leaven, but the leaven symbolized something. It was meant to symbolize sin and evil. Paul declares that the same is true of us in Christ. We're not only sheltering under his blood, having been spared his judgment, we've been made into a holy and pure people. This is who you already are, he says. And so Paul calls people to to put away sin, what he calls this leaven of malice and evil in verse 8. And not because you need to do this in order for God to accept you. He calls the church to to clean out the old leaven, to to remove the unrepentant sinner, not not to earn God's favor, not, not to become a holy people. No, it's because you already are. We practice church discipline corporately. We fight against sin in our own lives individually because we already have God's favor, because we are already a holy people to him. And so we live lives of sincerity and truth, not to earn forgiveness, but as a response to the forgiveness we've already received. I've I've used this illustration before, but can you imagine a child who said to his mom or dad, I'm going to be really good today so that you'll love me? Oh, it'd break your heart. No, why do any of us as children obey our parents? We obey our parents because they love us, because we already have their love, and so nothing gives us greater joy than pleasing them. It's no different with us as Christians. And so we practice church discipline. We put sin to death in our own lives, not to become something that we're not, but to be who we already are. If our boast is in the gospel, we will not tolerate sin for the sake of the sinner. We want to see their salvation. If we boast in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin for the sake of the church. We want to be who we already are in Christ. But finally, if our boast is in the gospel, we won't tolerate sin for the sake of the world. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. 
Paul finally clears up a misunderstanding about something that he'd written in an earlier letter. His previous warning was to not associate with sexually immoral people, but he wants to make really clear, hey, I wasn't talking about people outside the church. I wasn't talking about, about the people of this world, as he, as he says there in verse 10. And, and he's, not, he's not just talking about the sexually immoral, right? He's talking about the financially immoral. He's talking about the religiously immoral, idolaters, which means, well, that, that's kind of everybody, right? Like religiously immoral, financially immoral, sexually immoral. I think that covers everybody. But he's like, but, but I'm not actually talking about them out there. Because if I were talking about them out there, you'd have to leave the world. That's not Paul's point. We, we take the world as we find it. And we're not surprised when the world acts like the world. That's what it does. No, his point is that we shouldn't associate, we shouldn't be in fellowship with anyone who claims to be a Christian, but lives like the world. A brother or sister who lives like non-Christians live. That list he gives in verse 11, he kind of expands it a little bit. It's not exhaustive. It's illustrative. Whether it's in their sexuality or their attitudes towards money or their speech or their lack of self-control in drunkenness or their, their idolatry. If someone who claims to be a Christian is characterized, not one off, not like, oh man, I fell, I'm so sorry. Please help me, invites accountability. He's not talking about that. Someone who's characterized by this lives in an ongoing way in these kinds of sins, we're not only to put them out of the church, Paul says, we're not to be engaged in casual fellowship with them. He says, with such a person, don't even eat. In the ancient Near East, sharing a, a meal meant like everything's good between you and me, right? We're at peace, no problems. And Paul's saying, nope, not with somebody who claims to be a Christian, but lives that way. You can't communicate to them that everything's fine because everything's not fine. But what's interesting is Paul is saying all of this with an eye on the world. He's explicit about this in verse 12, right? What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? God judges outsiders. As I said, we take the world as we find it. It is why you will not hear me preach sermons about them out there. That's become very popular in evangelical circles these days telling the faithful inside how bad the people outside are. Not my job, and I'm not going to do it. What's my job? What's our job? It's our job to judge those inside, Paul says. Our concern is the integrity, the purity, the holiness of the church. And so he says, for a third time, Remove the evil person from among you. That is the unrepentant sinner. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 17 that we heard read earlier about what's to be done to an idolater in Israel. They were to be put to death. Wait a minute, Michael. You just told me that church discipline is not capital punishment. Paul doesn't want to see the guy die. He just wants to see him die to sin. So, so why is he quoting Deuteronomy 17? 
Well, I think it's because the whole point of Israel's distinctness from the idolatrous nations around them was evangelistic. Moses makes that very clear at the very beginning of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, when the nations around you see your life, when they see these laws that I've given you, when they see how different you are, then they will know what a wise and good God Israel has. Paul wants the Corinthian church, Paul wants our church to be radically distinct from the world, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, not so that we be puffed up and arrogant. No, he, he wants us to be distinct from the world for the sake of our gospel witness to the world. We're to be in the world. We should have non-Christian friends, but we're not to be of the world, characterized by the world. Jesus prays about this in John 17. We're to be around the world, visible in the world, but not like it, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 15. Now, we're to shine like stars in the darkness. Our lives together, uncompromised by tolerating sin, are evidence that the gospel is true that God has come in Christ and that Jesus Christ actually changes people's lives. That's why 1 Corinthians 5 is an appropriate Advent text. Because you, we are to be an Advent people. We are to be a congregation that is evidently distinct from the world, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can be a message of hope to the world, that as they look at us, they realize we can't explain that. I can't explain why they love one another the way they love one another. I cannot explain why they live self-sacrificially the way they do. I cannot explain that community except maybe God came to earth and something supernatural happened in Jesus. And those people have been changed. And so our church, its very existence, its life and love together becomes like a Christmas carol, an Advent carol to the world saying the gospel is true. And if you want proof, you can look at us. We're not perfect. We sin just like everybody else. But we confess our sins. We don't hide them. We invite people into our lives to help us in the battle against sin. We don't go it alone. We repent and we follow Jesus. And we do it again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, our church is meant to be a down payment on the promise that things will not always be as they are. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We have been set free. 
And our lives are now a down payment on the promise that Jesus is coming back and will make all things new. How could a church that boasts in the gospel of grace judge people? How could a church that preaches forgiveness remove people because of unrepentant sin? Only because that church believes the gospel is true. United we stand in purity. Not because we've made ourselves pure, but because Jesus Christ has. This is who we already are. And friend, this is what you can be too if you will put your faith in him. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us of all the ways in in which we have not believed your gospel, denied its truth and its power by hiding our sin, by not confessing our sin. Lord, we pray that you would indeed make us to be what we are in you, a people that's been forgiven and a people that's being made holy. Lord, our desire this Christmas is that our church would indeed be a testimony to the truth that Jesus Christ saves sinners and that he changes them. Lord, may that be evident in our lives by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen.